The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. Good afternoon. This is Steve Orleans, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm joined today by a longtime member of the committee, David Zweig. How many years have you been a member, actually? Uh, Certainly. Probably since almost since I was a graduate student, which would be 30, 35 years ago. Good to have you here. Thank he you. is going to be talking to us today about Hong Kong. He is currently the chair professor, Division of Social Sciences, the director of the Center on China's Transnational Relations at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, and has resided in Hong Kong for around 20 years? 21 years, yeah. 21 years. The title of the talk he's going to give is The Roots of the Unending Political Crisis in Hong Kong. What's the, in short, what's the thesis of this presentation? Uh, the thesis is that the mainland government, Beijing, sees Hong Kong from the perspective, I think, of a national security risk, uh, that it's territory that it can't control, uh, and like Tibet, Xinjiang, and Taiwan, it's sort of the peripheral areas where they feel threatened by the external forces. And Hong Kong people will not give up their democratic freedoms in order to resolve that anxiety about uh, national security. And so every time sort of the balance between one country and two systems, Beijing is more comfortable with one country, which a lot of one country means loving the mainland and loving Beijing and also loving the party, but wanting to move Hong Kong more and more towards one country and the people of Hong Kong, or at least 60% of them, wanting a more democratic, more open society. And as I said, not willing to give up those freedoms. Uh, well, not willing to give them up, one, for the national security the concerns of the government. And then every time we've seen that the mainland government tries to push towards one country, Hong Kong society pushes back. Is, China, is Hong Kong less free than it was in 1997? Uh, it depends how you define free, so that we have that debate all the time. So the, a lot of the democratic activists would say absolutely. Uh, freedom, press freedom, it's probably gone down somewhat. If you look at the amount of candidates who are elected, it's gone up. Uh, so there are some aspects it's freer. Uh, it's, but you it's, think it's fair to say it's less free, but it's more democratic? Would that be a good way to put it? That, that's not a, bad, uh, not a bad way. But again, how do you measure free? So can people protest? There's been no constraints on the rights of people to go out and protest. None of that. And we saw them... You know, for 79 days, people sitting in uh, in uh, downtown, different sections of Hong Kong, uh, something that I think most governments in the world would not tolerate. Uh, we as academics do not feel constrained or that it's changed in any specific way. I have a colleague in my department who has been attacked by Da Gung Bao uh, or Wen Wei Bao uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, but that happened six, seven, eight years ago because he's very opposed to the functional constituencies. But if you look, uh, you know, I'll show data today that will show that, in fact, the percentage of people voting for the Democratic parties uh, is still around 60 percent. The number of seats in LegCo and uh, the legislature controlled by the Democrats 
is higher than it was before. So there's your point about democracy. Um, but is the mainland weighing heavier on Hong Kong? Yes, I would say in that sense. But it's again, it's hard to it's hard to indicate, hard to measure. So in a in a debate, I could debate both sides. So why? Why the unhappiness? What you know? I've lived in Hong Kong on and off for forty-five years. Uh, I lived in Hong Kong under British rule, when the there was no heads of, That's right. Where the head Absolutely. of Hong Kong was a hundred percent a white male, selected by the Brits with no real relationship to the people of Hong Kong. What what's going on here? Well, I think a lot of it's economic. Uh, the you know, I mean, an amazing thing is how wealthy Hong Kong is. And yet there's no good retirement system. So the parents of the students who take to the streets know that their parents are not going to get a good retirement. The young people have no chance to buy an apartment. Uh, but that's a worldwide phenomenon. But they don't look at it as a worldwide phenomenon. They just look at it for themselves, which I, it's fair. Uh, so they're very unhappy about that. I think people thought that, just as the mainland thought that Hong Kong people would become more patriotic, the Hong Kong people thought that China would become more democratic right. and therefore are very troubled by the fact that it isn't getting more democratic. Uh, they, the offer of political reform that was turned down was actually progress. Again, you, going back to your first question about, uh, uh, you know, is the place freer? But it's far below what the people had anticipated 20 years from now. And if you think back, people in Hong Kong have really been fighting for democracy for a long time. So uh, they, they don't see the kind of progress on that. They see economic problems. And they there see There wasn't those... much of a democratic movement when the Brits were there. Well, in 87, was... we now know that in 1987, the Brits did a, a, a public opinion poll which showed that there was popular support for democratization, and the Brits buried it. So when I talk today, one of the things I say is that people basically in Hong Kong have been in favor of democracy at least for 30 years, yeah. not 20 years. Um, so the Brits... But they weren't activists. About they it. weren't activists. Well, the, well, you know the people who were activists. They're still around. Uh, some of them are in LegCo. Uh, some of them have now just starting to retire. They're, they're our age. They're... Uh, in their mid-late 60s, some in their 70s, and they're starting to retire. But, you know, Martin Lee's been around for a long time. Yeah. But then Anson Chan wasn't an activist long before. She was just a British civil servant, right. a trusting, loyal British civil servant, uh, and now she's a political activist. So I think that's made a big difference. Uh, so I think that... Uh, have, have government services deteriorated in the last 20 years, or is it still as, as good as it's always been? I, I think it's still as good. My wife, when we moved out there... Uh, said one of the things was when she saw that the lamp lights were not being, the light bulbs were not being changed properly, then it was ready, then it was time to go. <laughs> and and there's no sense of that. Mm -hmm. uh, infrastructure, money is still being spent. But again, going back to the, the gripe, so if you're a young person and you see that there's a, a huge surplus of money in the Hong Kong government, but it's not being spent on on improving the health care, though health care is pretty good. It's not being spent on education. It's not being spent on public housing, as in Singapore, where people have places to live. And the money is being spent to link up to the mainland, to build a high-speed rail, to build a bridge to Macau. So people look at that and they say, wait a second, this is money that should be being spent here in Hong Kong to keep our lives, to keep our 
our livelihood up. Uh, it's not going there. Salaries have not gone up for young people in almost 20 years. So there's not this 40% of the young people want to leave. Uh, there's a huge desire to migrate out of Hong Kong now among young people because they where? see no future. A lot of them to Canada, U.S., Australia, Britain. Those would be the four main places where people want to go. So there's a lot of disillusionment at this point. Did the Democrats make a mistake not to accept the reform proposal, even though it was only a part of the pie? Yes. Well, that's my view. I wrote an op-ed in the South China Morning Post the day before uh, Carrie Lam was elected as uh, chief executive, and I took that position. And I see it very much as a rain, they were offered a rainy, Hong Kong people were offered a Iranian-style democracy. Right? The mullahs chose... The mullahs chose which cleric could run, uh, and then everybody got the chance to vote. But even in, in Iran, we've seen that there's a difference between which, you know, you elect Raf Sajani, and all of a sudden you have movement on a military accord or a missile accord with the United States. Still a, a very hard-line person from most Western people's democratic positions. And I make the argument, if you think of the democratic camp as one tent, and the pro-Beijing camp is another. The pro-Beijing camp has about 30, 35% of the population. But if you, even if both candidates are from that tent, to win the election in a, a universal suffrage where every person has a vote, you have to put forward policies that will attract that 60% of people in the Democratic tent. And those people would start fighting with each other. The two candidates could start pushing with each other. And so there's a theory that would say that everybody, that those would have, they'd have to start moving towards the middle. And the middle is where, that's better than where they, you know, you get an outcome that then has some advantage to public, public policy in Hong Kong, housing issues, uh, all the issues that I've been talking about. And the concern among young people in the Democratic camp is as long as you have a chief executive who is completely dominated by Beijing and by the business sector, then you're not going to right. get the kinds of policies right. that Hong Kong people need. I so, agree. So there's a core link between economics and economic concerns and politics. And that's where I, it's not just even this abstract, I mean, some people think it's an abstract freedom of democracy, but it, it's, that's not the really meaningful part about democracy in Hong Kong. The meaningful thing is you put someone in as chief executive who has to listen to the people because he, want, he or she wants to win, and then the policies start to move against the tycoons, and they start to move in favor of the general population, which has you know, one of the highest inequality scores in the world. Uh, it's a remarkable place that uh, there's so much wealth and a million working poor. Lots of people living in small places. Uh, it, it, so we're approaching the 20th anniversary. Jump ahead to the 40th anniversary. Mm. What's Hong Kong going to look like? What, what, how does this play out? Because there seems, in what was a relatively conflict-free society for decades and decades, is now becoming a conflict-ridden society. Right, and, and becoming a little bit more extreme. Yes. Right. So you've had so the, the localist. Uh, I'm not so optimistic. Uh, you know, I'm about 60, 40 pessimistic, probably. Uh, I see the, the localist. So what, what does that mean to be pessimistic? So what, what do you think happens? Businesses stop setting up there. Poverty increases. Well, uh, there's unrest. What, what does I think, it mean? I think you could have continuing unrest. 
you could have a heavier hand from Beijing. Uh, I, I mean, there has to be some clear pressure to resolve the economic problems of Hong Kong. Those things have to be resolved. If they are not resolved, then Hong Kong just continues in this crisis, uh, uh, this unending crisis, this confrontation. Uh, and I, as in a more unstable society, people less, young people less happy, maybe they'll leave, but a lot of those people who aren't so happy can't leave anyway. So it just becomes a more, a more unstable, a more tense society. Some one one person I was speaking to yesterday, uh, uh, interestingly, a, a mainlander who lives in in Toronto, was saying that he thought that this was like the boiling the water heating up on the frog, and that the people of Hong Kong will realize soon that Beijing's really tightening, but but. As long as you don't have major crises, it's much harder for Beijing to tighten. But it, over time, we may see a more and and the tightening mainland. will take the form of what? Well, they'll try and reintroduce national education, so more patriotic education. Uh, they'll try and introduce a national security law, which would tighten up freedom of expression. Uh, they could start to make it more difficult for people to protest. You'll see this year on July 1st, where July 1st has become the traditional day of protest. This year, because it's the 20th anniversary, a pro-Beijing group has now been given control of Victoria Park for the march, a pro-Beijing march, whereas in the past that's where the protest marches began. So a kind of state... How was that decided? Uh, Hong Kong government decided. So it's a on kind what, of... On what basis? First come, uh, first serve. Nope, that it's a so national. It's a, it's a it's a twentieth twentieth year anniversary. So this year we give it to we give it to the pro Beijing forces. But this is a kind of counter mobilization, a state mobilization against the popular democratic mobilization, and I think that's the kind of thing that we may start to see. Are I they going a, to another park? I, I'm sure they will. But it, but it was very convenient place to start. So then march into People Central. know it. It was an easy march to Central. The subway line was good. Uh, we all took the subway to get there. Taxis could reach there, and that's where. And then the the traditional route in through Wan Chai, through Admiralty, uh, right into Central. And so now they're going to have to try and figure out something different. So it, that's l last question because we're sure. we've exceeded our twelve minutes. Um, Business communities still have confidence? I think so. I actually did a, a study for the for Shenzhen University in light of the Mongkok riots, where your listeners may or may not know that there were really some pretty nasty riots, uh, Chinese New Year a year and a half ago. And I got on the phone with business community, with the heads of several chambers of commerce who I know, and nobody was talking about leaving. People felt that it was still even oh well one thing that i think is also happening is more and more mainland mainlanders and mainland companies coming down into hong mm -hmm. kong and in some ways that's good for business because those people still need the legal services the accounting services the professional services so you won't see the professional organizations running out of hong kong uh, the biggest group to suffer is that because hong kong people have displayed an anti-mainland perspective over the last two years, three years, the mainland tourists have cut back dramatically. 
it used to be 48 million, I think 48 million tourists came two years ago from the mainland, and they were all buying luxury goods. So the organization that's suffering the most are the French luxury good companies. Those Which are owned stores. by Hong Kong people. No, they're owned probably by multinational. You may know, but I think they're owned by French multinationals. I always think of you know my friend Dixon Poon and others who used ah. to own Ferragamo in Hong Kong, okay. own the various that the retailers actually it's a licensing arrangement. Ah, okay, so, so there's the a business, you know five ten percent that goes back to Italy, France, right, UK. Well, US. those places have closed down somewhat, or yeah. the businesses and suffered. rents are, are suffering doubtlessly in Central as a result. Yeah, but rents still aren't suffering enough. <laughs> I mean, you know, as someone who, who can afford to rent a nice place but can't really afford to buy, New York's cheap relative to Hong Kong. You know, Manhattan's cheap relative to Hong Kong. So, All right, well, on that note, we will close. But, David, thank you so much for being with us. My and um, we will have a full video of the hour presentation if you this hasn't been enough for you. But thank you so much. Very informative, very interesting. Thanks.